Hello and welcome to Social Justice Matters, a podcast from Social Justice Ireland. My name is Colette Bennett and I'm Economic and Social Analyst with Social Justice Ireland. As regular listeners will know, we have three types of podcasts. We have our seminar series, which is a look back at our conferences and our seminars to hear our expert presenters such as Anne Pettifor, Tony Fahey, Joe Larragie and many, many others. We then have our 10-minute lesson series, which again is a very short, brief introduction into what we think you should know about certain policy topics. And then we have our interview series, where we interview a range of different experts on a range of different policy areas, and today is one of those. In today's episode, I'm interviewing Saoirse Brady of the Children's Rights Alliance, and we're talking about their recently published report card and policy implications for children and families of what needs to be done next. So Saoirse, thank you so much for doing this. How are you doing? I'm good. Thanks, Claude. Thanks for having me. Good. Now, it's been a very busy time for the Alliance. You recently published your report card. Can you give our listeners a little bit of, a, of detail about what that actually is, what's in it, what it's reporting on, um, and maybe starting off, I suppose, with a little bit about the Alliance for those who haven't come across it before? Yeah, so the, the Children's Rights Alliance is an umbrella organisation. So we have a 140 plus members now, and those include the really big organisations that represent children's interests like Bernardo's, the ISPCC, right down to really small um, local based organisations like Ballyfermit at Star um, and, and Kassan. And so, you know, we really um, we look at a wide range of children's rights right from the age of zero right up to 18 and beyond for, for young people, too. Um, so uh, in terms of report card, this is our 14th edition. So we um, we kind of we borrowed the idea from an organization in California 14 years ago when they came to visit Ireland and they did a scorecard um, to look at what their government was doing and try to hold them to account. So what we do is when a new program for government comes out, we select commitments that are measurable, tangible for children and young people. Um, and this time around, um, we have 16 commitments that we selected. And then we um, we monitor progress every year. We look at what they've done during the year to progress those um, commitments and we uh, grade them on it. We have an independent panel that's chaired by uh, former Supreme Court Judge Catherine McGuinness. And we have representatives from unions, from um, academia, from business. Uh, we have a traveller representative as well. Um, you know, so really diverse uh, range of people who look at this independently and they, they really try and keep us honest because sometimes we're very close to the material you know so um, they really look at it and say no no you're being unfair there or you're actually you're being uh, you're being too easy on them either so um, like it, it's a really good tool to hold government to account on what they said they would do for children it has its limitations in that way as well because we can only look at what's in the program for government so very often we get members asking us why aren't you looking at this particular issue and you know we have to say well actually it isn't in the program for government or if it is it's it's you know a very general commitment it would be very hard to measure but we do get a lot of input from government departments so you know we look at what's available the information that's available in the um public domain uh, through parliamentary questions, through publications, um, but we also engage with government departments directly and they do input every year and they want to get a good grade. You know, year on year, we we, um, 
we engage with them and they, they're really helpful. They provide the information where they can. So it's as up to date and accurate as possible. And we engage with ministers as well afterwards and, and, and uh, Oireachtas members and policymakers. And there's a real sense of they want they want to get a grade, but uh, A grades are really rare, I have to say. We've only had a handful of them in the whole 14 years. But um, we do have quite a number of Bs at times, um, but we've gone right down to Fs at times. This this time around, we haven't. We've got two Es. One was for family homelessness and one was for mental health. So looking at those commitments, the, those are where the government really fell down this year. And we're in the second year of the programme for government. So last year, we would have, you know, looked at it afresh, you know, seen what they had done during the year. And, you know, obviously the government was only formed halfway through the year also we were in the middle of a pandemic so we took all of that into consideration so we have you know really looked at that through that lens and tried to be as fair as we can and you mentioned the I suppose the 16 commitments and and they came from the program for government for 2020 so I'll just I suppose I'll just read them out um Mm -hmm. to to the listeners so there's the reform of the childcare system there's the, the establishment of a central agency childcare Ireland commence a free school books pilot, introduce national monitoring of reduced timetables, and that's for for children in in schools. Um, Mm -hmm. Ensure each child with a special educational need has an appropriate school place, undertake an independent assessment of the education inclusion pilot for traveller and Roma children, end the admission of children to adult psychiatric units. Uh, And as you say, we we got one of our, our lowest marks there. I mean, I can't believe that's still a practice that exists. Um, address food poverty in children, introduce a public health obesity act, reduce the number of homeless families, develop a national youth homelessness strategy, end the direct provision system and replace it with a not-for-profit accommodation model, create new pathways for long-term undocumented people and their children, enact the harassment and harmful communications bill, enact the online safety and media regulation bill and establish an online safety commissioner, and enact a family court bill and build a new family court building. So these are essentially all of the, the children's specific commitments that were made in the 2020 programme for government. Is that right? Yes, that's it. Um, okay. And you've already talked um, about the two, I suppose, the two E's, the two mm-hmm. uh, areas where we're, we're let down, one being the admission of, of children to adult psychiatric units and the other being the, the lack of reduction or the lack of significant reduction in homeless um family homelessness where did we do quite well in there's some there's some good news stories are there not yeah and I suppose I mentioned that we've only ever had a handful of A's but they did get an A this year because the commitment was to enact the harassment and harmful communications bill so this was Coco's law um, around the sharing of intimate images um, if you recall, there was a, a young woman uh, known as Coco who, who took her own life, unfortunately, because of the sharing of intimate images and her family would accompany him very strongly on this, as did a number of our members like Dublin Rape Crisis Centre, um, CF Ireland, Women's Aid, etc. Um, and they did enact it and they commenced it um, in February of last year as well. So we had to we, we felt that we had to be fair and give them a good grade for that there were a few things left out of that. So stalking, for example, wasn't included. So that is something that actually there's a private member's bill in the Shannon on that. So, you know, we look at that um, again. And also we look at education around consent. And, and, you know, very often young people don't realise they're doing something wrong because they haven't been educated. So, So that's something that's really important to kind of, you know, not say, okay, the law's enacted. We need to actually look at how it's been implemented. 
um, afterwards. But I suppose some of the other areas you mentioned reduced timetables there. They did get a, a B minus there um, this year. That would be the Department of Education. And I suppose a reduced timetable for those who don't know, it's where a, a, a child or young person is put on a short school day. So they'll only go in for part of the day or for part of the week. And there has been research done by, on this by a number of um, particularly disability organisations where they found that uh, one in four children with autism, for example, will be put on a reduced timetable at some point during their school life. And we've heard, uh, we have an information line um, where parents and children and young people and people who work with them can ring us with legal queries on issues like this. We've heard of children as young as five being placed on a reduced timetable. So they're barely in the school door and they're being put on a reduced timetable for a behavioural issue or something like that. We had one young boy, actually, um, it was Connor's story. We reported on this in our annual report on the information line last year. And he, um, he'd he been at crash, no issues there, started at school. Uh, the teacher said he was playing up and there were behavioural issues and, you know, they put him on a reduced um, timetable because of this. The the parents went and got, um, you know, they brought him to different specialists. It turned out he had a problem with his eyesight. He couldn't see the board properly. And so that's why he was acting up or as the teachers called it acting up, but it wasn't. He was just displaying a bit of frustration, probably. But he was placed on a reduced timetable for that reason. And up till now, we didn't know how many kids were placed on reduced timetables. Yeah. There were no guidelines in place. Parents didn't know that they had to consent to this. They just felt like, oh, the school's telling me I have to do this. So we would have pushed quite hard along with our members. Um, and another group that was particularly impacted by this are traveller children as well. Um, so we would have pushed with a number of our members to to get guidelines put in place. We had held a big um, a big conference last year, a national conference that Josepha Madigan actually uh, recorded a piece for the the Minister of State for um, Special Education and Inclusion, and um, we were really glad to see shortly afterwards they did publish guidelines on this because they've been in the ether for for a number of years now. Um, but they published them and I suppose now, so we give them credit for that. Um, we're talking to them like one of the things we called for in report card was because we make recommendations as well on, on how they can um, improve their grade for the following year, just like a school report card. Um, and I suppose one of the things we talked about was that monitoring and implementation piece and also doing a child friendly version of the guidelines. And the Department of Education is in the process of trying to put explainers together on this and really try and reach out to people. Um, but we do have a resource as well on this um, for families who, who might be in this situation. And I suppose just added on to the reduced timetable, one of the things we added in this year was around alternative education as well, because it can often be very linked. You very often see young people um, disengaging from school who've been on a short, reduced timetable, um, it means as well that they don't get to make friends in school. Like they're literally there for a few hours. They mightn't be there for break time. So they don't have that social aspect of school, which is so important for children and young people, and um, particularly those who find school a difficult, challenging environment. Um, but alternative education is something that we are currently doing a lot of work on. This is where um, mainstream school doesn't work for, for children and young people. And we saw that through the pandemic, one size fits all approach just doesn't work. So what we really want to see is these alternatives. So there's 
places like iSchool, which have blended learning. So some young people work better online or on a one-to-one basis. Court Life Centre, they um, operate an alternative education setting. And there was a piece of work done by the Department of Education a couple of years ago. They did do kind of an audit of this. They looked at what, what's happening out there. Youth Reach falls into this category as well. That would be the state-run one. Um, and they were looking to see, you know, what was happening, where the funding was going and what was needed. They haven't published that paper to date. That's something we're really encouraging them to do. Uh, we really want to see that because we know that paper is sitting there with the department. Um, and we are seeing increased funding for some of those alternative education settings. But if you're in a certain part of the country where you don't have access to that, and you have to be referred to it very often by the Education Welfare Service, um, you know, you just can't access it. And, and there's, like, a, there's a wait for oh, educational psychiatry and, and occupational therapy um, mm-hmm. for children. I think it's a, it's a two-year wait at the moment. Yeah. Um, so being in that position for two years when yeah. you've got a young child, that, that's a very difficult space for that child to be. Yeah. And as you say, it can impact not just the kind of academic side, but also the social side. Yeah. Um, you referenced, you know, that there's there's only been guidelines in relation to the shorter hours or the reduced hours uh, very, very recently. Was there an established or even kind of a half established set of criteria that that people could relate back to to parents? If, say, for example, you got a call or I got a call to say that one of our children was going to be placed on on reduced hours. There wasn't really no um schools were operating it on a kind of case-by-case basis. Um, And, you know, very often it wasn't captured because if the child was in at all that day, they were on the road. So, you know, the Education Welfare Service, um, TUSA Educational Support Service, they only really kind of come into play when, you know, when it looks like a child has missed 20 days of school or more. So they'll go, oh, there's an issue there. We need to investigate that. Whereas if a child's in for part of the day and they're marked and present, then sure, you would never know. And that's one of the big issues that they really have to deal with. And they are putting a monitoring um, system in place to see to try and capture that. And, you know, I suppose the other thing is to try and capture the kinds of children that this is impacting more. But some of those will be self-identified. And so, you know, the, the statistics might be completely true to form but we will have a sense of it for once hopefully but I think those guidelines were brought in September last year but they only came in to force in January to give the schools lead in time and so only came into force in January this year so it will be really interesting to see what they do with this and you know will they release the statistics at the end of the year how will they report it and you know I think it will be really essential for them to to use those statistics to see what supports need to be put in place as well. We know that they need more education welfare officers um, and there have been commitments and they have started to put more in place in certain areas and particularly around say, some uh, traveller children, uh, you know, where, where there are a number of tra- traveller children present in the school. They are trying to identify that they're working with people like the Galway Traveller Movement, for example. Um, but more, much more needs to be done in that to ensure that it is only ever a last resort, you know, that parents know they can withdraw consent, that they're not forced into this, that they're given valid reasons for it. And that the child is told as well, because that, that's the other part that people sometimes forget, you know, they'll tell the parents, but the child is kind of left out of the picture and they're just doing what they're told then, yeah. you know. 
Yeah. And I, I presume, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that, you know, in addition to what you can currently monitor about this area, that the delays in terms of diagnosis and treatment or diagnosis and supports, not necessarily treatment, um, where there is a, an issue, that's also going to have a knock-on impact in terms of you know, the types of supports that you can put in place or can plan for. Yeah, and I suppose that's, that's another area that we've looked at in the report card, that um, constitutional right to a school place for children with special educational needs, because we know that um, there have been issues, and particularly during the pandemic, the information that we got back from the department this year showed that twice the number of children, still a small enough number, but twice the number of children in 2021 were being homeschooled because they didn't have a school place. And we weren't given the rationale for that. You know, we know during the pandemic there were some parents who were, you know, for medical reasons, didn't want to send their children to school. But, you know, a child is entitled to that. And I suppose we've had the Education of Persons with Special Educational Needs Act in place since uh, 2004. And parts of that still haven't been commenced. So, you know, children are meant to have a, an individual education plan. That's never been put in force there's meant to be an appeals board. They've changed the allocation model though, you know, so schools have a bit more flexibility, but there's also more pressure in schools because they don't have the, you know, the the streamlined supports for, for particular cohorts of children that they instead. Um, so, you know, that, that is a difficulty, but I suppose they did do all that in that um, area this year. Uh that we, we gave them a, a decent enough grade. They went up from a D to, let me see, what was it? Um, it was a D to a C minus because they have committed to do the review of the Epson Act. Um, we would encourage them to do it this year, but our, when we spoke to the department then, they are going to be doing the bulk of the work this year, but it might be early next year before the review is published. Um, but that will be a really critically important piece for them because it's been going on for so long and so many more children, while there are waiting lists, I think we understand a lot more now about the special needs that children have. And we d- we definitely saw that during the pandemic. We heard from members about children regressing because they were out of school. And it was one of the reasons why we were pushing for schools to be open and pushing for that focus on vulnerable children and particularly those with special educational needs to be back in school so that, that they didn't lose out even more um, on their learning and that socialisation piece as well, the development piece. Um, because that was of real concern to us. Yeah, I mean, I I certainly would have been one of the more nervous parents about sending my children back to school when things started to reopen. But having spoken to to friends of mine, um, and particularly friends with with children with additional needs, they absolutely experienced a, a huge regression, um, both in you know physical ability in terms of and and in reading, but also in terms of socialization. Yeah. And they couldn't wait to get their children back in, and it. I suppose that nuance, that balance is constantly just lost in the debate. And it's it's almost a, a pitching constantly of of the them and us. And, you know, it, it was never it was never like that, I suppose, if you spoke to parents. Um, but it was all of it was fear based. Um, and I think we could probably have done a little bit better on the messaging around all of that at the time. Um, you mentioned, you know, the the successive governments are are desperate to increase their report card and you know to to, to do better. Um, given that it's uh, it's 
I suppose, weighted or benchmarked against the, the programme for government commitments. Is it possible to compare over time or over programmes for government um, how successive governments are doing? Yeah, that's a really interesting question because there are certain areas where, um, like since the beginning of report card, they've been included, but the commitment is different. So it is a bit hard to... to uh, you know, compare and contrast, really, I suppose. But, you know, for example, we always have something on traveller and Roma children. Um, and we used to do it differently. Like, report card is a huge piece of work. It takes up half the year to write. And then the other half is trying to do the advocacy on it. And then you're back into the cycle again. So we did realise that last time around. And we had something like 28 commitments in the last programme for government. And under different headings, we would have had maybe two or three commitments. So this time around, we tried to be very streamlined. We tried to be very focused. And so that's why there are a lot less. Um, But also, you know, some programmes for government are stronger than others when it comes to children. And they, they make more concrete commitments and I suppose that's part of the job of work as well is to try and make sure those commitments are in there so the alliance does that we work with our members try and support them to get other strong commitments in there so that you are kind of grading them on things that really matter and it's not just a tick box exercise and and that's why sometimes there might be a commitment in there that looks like oh yeah that that's one that the alliance should be included in report card but we've no way of measuring it you know um so it, it can be it can be a little bit frustrating at times for for people we understand that and um, for members but I suppose it is something that we just try we we're very evidence-based we need to know that we can get the information and that we can actually analyze it and and make strong recommendations on it but I suppose you know things like mental health Housing has over the last two programme for government, certainly um, that has something on family homelessness. That was the other E-grade that has come up. Um, youth homelessness uh, is a separate standalone one this time because there is a commitment to do the youth homelessness strategy. And it was really interesting about a week after we published report card, they started work um, on, on putting the consultation together. They announced it. So, you know, sometimes there is a connection um, or it helps move things along a little bit, we think. Um, but uh, yeah, it is. it can be difficult at times to compare and contrast. And there are different governments as well. And, and we have to recall that, you know, that different gov- governments are made up of different parties and they operate differently. Um, so, yeah. It, personality it's can yeah. go a long way uh, to coin a phrase. And different ministers Some well, ministers you know? will be more engaged yeah. with a particular topic for a particular reason mm-hmm. um, and, and they might be stronger in the push to get things moving. Yeah. Um, the recommendations that came out of this year's report card, mm-hmm. can you bring us through some of those? Yes, yeah, so I suppose I've mentioned family homelessness and I suppose one of the things we really wanted um, there is to, um, you know, the Housing for All strategy would have been published, but there wasn't a particular focus on child and family homelessness. And what we saw during the pandemic was that family homelessness went down. We had a greater number of properties uh, available for people and there were eviction moratoriums, rent freezes, and that all meant that the homelessness statistics fell. Um, And then last year, when those measures were lifted, because they were temporary in nature, or so we were told, um, we start seeing the numbers creep up again. So by the end of last year, you know, you had about 2,400 children uh, experiencing homelessness. And those are the ones that are counted officially because we know that other people are living 
um, with relatives and they're not counted in, in those homelessness statistics because they're not an emergency accommodation. So we would like to see, and a number of our members would have called for this as well, a family homelessness strategy, a focus on that, particularly around one-parent families, because we know that they experience homelessness traveller families, especially larger traveller families, because very often there isn't accommodation um, suitable for them, uh, never mind the culturally appropriate piece, but just rental accommodation, accommodation. just isn't big enough. Um, so, you know, people leaving direct provision as well. Obviously, there's a housing shortage so sometimes people have gotten their status, you know, asylum seekers who've sought protection have gotten status but can't actually move on because there's nowhere for them to go. So we would, this year we asked um, the government to do an audit of those measures that took place during the pandemic to try and see what worked because if they work, then why can't we apply some of these things and extend them on because they clearly work. And now, you know, report card was written before we even thought about the Ukraine crisis and now you know that this is it was urgent before and now it's it's really pressing and we really need to consider um clever ways to to address that so that that's the family homelessness one and um, another area that they did well in was reform of the childcare system and i suppose you know with that we did see a flurry of different pieces coming together there's different pieces of that puzzle um i suppose so you know there was the expert group uh reported on the funding model and they have looked at putting in place core funding for for early year settings they've looked at a disadvantage type model looking at DESH or looking at areas of deprivation and obviously we we will have new census data so that will help us bring that up to date so really pleased about that um, and then there's the child minding action plan um that's there as well now you know those are all really important pieces of the same puzzle um, and then obviously recently there has been discussion on setting up the agency. Um, you know, they're calling it Childcare Ireland, but we would encourage them to change the name of that because obviously it's not just about childcare. We would say, you know, it's early uh, childhood care and education. And it's that for a reason because children are learning from birth. So we really need to, you know, see that reflected in the name of any agency. But um, I suppose the inspection piece is really important there as well. So, you know, at the moment, there's a two-tier inspection. So TUSA goes in and inspects. They inspect the, the child protection piece, the environment, all of that. But then for over threes who are in the, well, we call it the free preschool year. It's not completely free. But, um, you know, the Department of Education inspect that as well. So you have these two different um, inspections going on, never mind all the environmental <laughs> Uh, health side of things so uh, settings are under a lot of pressure there as well and um, to report onto those so streamlining that would really help making sure there's dedicated funding and again during the pandemic we saw the state step up and pay the wages of um, early years workers we saw I think everyone realized just how important they are I'm a new parent I certainly realized how important they were my little boy couldn't start crash until like he I was back to work for months before he could start crash and um, so you know they're doing such a valuable job and we really need to we really need to ensure that they're being given the respect they're due and the the wages that they're due as well. So absolutely, there's a a lot in terms of even the response of the sector itself, where, you know, they're coming up against huge issues in relation to insurance. So while costs and certainly when when we lived in Dublin and the kids were a little smaller, 
costs were astronomical for childcare. That wasn't translating into wages for child care, no. child care workers. And I mean, when you think about what you're doing, when you hand over your child to a child care worker, you want them to really care about their job. Yeah. You want them to feel valued and to feel happy in their job, because mm-hmm. we all know those days, if you're not your best self, you're nobody's best parent. And I mean, I, I say that from experience. Um, and, you know, so it's it, it translates then into what your children are experiencing and how they grow. Um, and all of that is, is so well connected. Um, and that kind of leads me on then to my next question, just in relation to, well, if we if we don't do better, what are the potential outcomes of 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 standing still or going backwards? Yeah, I suppose one of the big focuses of this year as well in a number of areas, and you would have touched on it, the food poverty piece, the early years piece, the um, education piece, you know, free school books. Child poverty is such a huge issue. And this year we have an opportunity because we've signed something called the EU Child Guarantee. Um, And the state has to put in place a national action plan to tackle child poverty. We're also reviewing the roadmap for social inclusion at the same time and looking at the child poverty target. And it was interesting last year at the social inclusion forum, I chaired the um, session on children and families. And the question was, what should that target be? And everyone said zero. It should be zero. Why should any child be living in poverty? But the reality is, you know, there's 100,000 children um, living in, you know, consistent poverty. 200,000 at risk of poverty, um, you know, we really need to consider this. And those those stats are based off, obviously, the EU silk data, but also we're, we're using numbers from the 2016 census because that's obviously the latest figures we have for how many children there are in the state, really. Um, so again, really excited about the 2022 census because I am a, a policy nerd, but uh, I, I filled in I'm my... I'm happy you're really excited about it as well. I'm really excited about it. <laughs> But it's going to just really help with a lot of these issues. But I suppose that National Action Plan on Child Poverty, um, the state was due to have a a version into the European Commission in March, but a lot of the states have been delayed and obviously there's a lot going on. So it's due to be published in June and we would hope to see a number of these issues um, addressed in it. You know, things like providing free school materials for children. There's six areas in the, the the child guarantee. So it's the early years piece. It's um, access to adequate and effective housing. It's access to nutrition and um, free school meals or a hot meal every school day, I think is the way they frame it. Um, free access to healthcare, which is a, another huge issue and not one that's really covered in report card apart from like, I suppose, the healthcare Issues that are covered are the mental health one, um, obviously children being placed in adult psychiatric units and looking at the, the state of the child and adolescent mental health services. Um, and then there's a public health obesity act and the food poverty piece. Um, and, you know, while there is a working group on food poverty set up and that that will hopefully feed into that national action plan on child poverty. And they are looking at the drivers of food poverty and there's going to be research on that. You know, that's really welcome. But, you know, we really need to find out how many we saw that during the pandemic we don't know how many people are really experiencing food poverty and we know from the pandemic through our members through work that we did on the ground um, and through other people working in the sector that food poverty became a big issue for people who'd never experienced it before um 
they'd never had to go to a food bank. And the stigma around that, that's something that really needs to be addressed. That's where family resource centres played a blinder, you know, and other community organisations working in the ground able to provide families with that support without the stigma attached. Um, so, you know, this this Child Poverty Action Plan is a real, it could be a game changer. Um, and, you know, there is money that uh, will go with it from the EU. Uh, it's meant to be at least 5% of the European Social Fund uh, plus funding that's coming, but that doesn't mean that it has to stop at five percent. They could go, they could go further than that, and we think they should. And certainly, um, the alliance would have supported the National Advisory Council on Children and Young People under Bob F. Brighter Outcomes, uh, Better Outcomes, Brighter Futures, uh, the the National Children's Strategy. Um, we would have supported them to to develop recommendations. Um, that went to the minister. And one of the big ones was um, putting in place a child poverty unit, having dedicated unit to look at this, because we've seen, so like under the Labour government in the UK back in the day, they did have this and they had um, uh, a Child Poverty Act. They had a target set in legislation or something St. Vincent de Paul has called for, actually. Um, and, you know, they had an Oireachtas or parliamentary committee review this. So, you know, we would have looked at all of that. And if you put the resources into that and actually, because we do have civil servants working on this in various different departments. We're not saying that you don't, but actually bringing them together, bringing that knowledge, experience, expertise together and having a real focus on this. This doesn't just um, target children and ensure that they have a better experience and better outcomes. It targets families and all of society so it has huge benefit and we know that like even from a cost benefit analysis you know from I think for every euro you invest you save nine you know so it, it's all that like we could really make a difference and we just need to be very strategic and clever about it and and make sure that we're we're trying to alleviate the pressure that are on, on families particularly at the moment with the cost of living crisis you know again we just like we touched on it in the um, the introduction to report card, but it was something that was only starting to come out towards the end of last year. So it isn't really captured as fully as it might be in next year's report card. Sure. And I mean, I had a, a very interesting podcast interview with Cahill McCrory. So he's a researcher, Dr. Cahill McCrory. He's a researcher with Tilda. So the other end of the, the age spectrum yes. all together. Um, and he had produced with colleagues uh, a research piece on the impact of childhood adversity. So not ACEs as such, but childhood mm -hmm. adversity um, on on aging. Um, and essentially what it would have found was three types of, of childhood adversity, one being child poverty, the mm -hmm. second being the death of a parent uh, before age 16 and the third being um, sexual abuse. And what mm -hmm. it found was child poverty can decrease your age or sorry, your, your life expectancy by two years, um, the death of a parent by a year and the, the, the sexual abuse by just over six months, just over half a year. Um, and while there are interventions and I asked him, you know, is, is there anything to do that you could do to stop that? And certainly things like building resilience, not personal resilience, a big issue with personal resilience, but building building resilience, building communities, making sure that there is a societal response as well as an individual response um, does help. But certainly there are um, there are are fewer gains, I suppose, when a child is raised in poverty than 
the other way around, you know, if a child who's raised in poverty and who grows up to be a, a more affluent adult um, still would have a lower life expectancy than a child who was raised in relative wealth and then is is in poverty as an adult. Um, I suppose we're seeing those outcomes now. You know, you, you've can I say you have a new role coming up um, and you're certainly going to, to, to be at the business end of that. I mean, what can be done in, in that regard? Yeah, I think that's it. You know, it's that looking at investing early in children's lives. And, you know, I suppose when you talk about ACEs, you know, there's two sides of the coin. There is controversy around them because um, some people feel they were developed for insurance purposes in the first place. Um, and, you know, to try and determine what your outcomes will be. Uh, and this would have been in the States. But, you know, I think there's some very valuable lessons that could be learned from them because we do know that the the development of children in their very early years and like those first few months of life, like we talk about the first thousand days of life because it is so important and it's important to have those supports in place. So for example, you know, we have an early year strategy there. There's lots of commitments in it that are really good. One of them that we would really like to see is that child health workforce piece put in place because like I'm from the North, as you can probably tell by the accent, I still remember the home visitor coming to our house, you know, um, when I was really small and when my brother was born, you know, um, and I suppose what we need to see is that starting very early because here public health nurses, they're dealing with, you know, cradle to grave. Um, and we saw that during the pandemic, like they were redeployed. Um, I know certainly from my point of view and from others, other new parents that I know, um, you know, a lot of the health checks were missed for our children. Um, and I think that's going to have implications in the longer term as well. But that public health nurse is like, if you think about it, when you come out of hospital, no matter who you are, that person goes into your hospital. They're not just, obviously, they're there to check the development of your child, check that you're okay. But they're picking up on things like postnatal depression. They could be picking up on, on domestic abuse. They could be picking up on, you know, is there enough to eat in the house? All those really important things. So we think actually establishing that relationship earlier, even before the child is born, is really important. And, you know, there's longitudinal evidence from the states, like from the 70s, that show just how that, how beneficial that can be for child outcomes and, you know, for longer term outcomes for children um, who face adversity or disadvantage so I think that's something that um you know could be done and that we could really look at but the other part of it is you're talking about children in the very early years but you know up until the age of 25 the human brain is still developing that's what the research is showing now so you know you can change you know people write other young people off because of what they've done so for example you mentioned the new role yes I'm, I'm going into the Irish Penal Reform Trust but you see with young offenders like say Oberstown like they've started publishing statistics in the last number of years but you see our traveler children are overrepresented children with a who've been in care or involved with the care system they're overrepresented and children who've lost a parent so all those adversities that children and young people have faced you know, they haven't been supported through them and that's not their failure, that's the systems. And um, so putting in place really strong supports for, like, as you said, in the community, you know, we have all these really great um, organisations or parenting programmes that can support parents uh, through those very early years of life and make 
then make sure that they're supported, that they know what they're looking for, that they know how to connect with their child, that it picks up on some of those things that mean that parents and children, um, you know, face really difficult decisions. And then, you know, there are things like we mentioned food poverty already. Like even before the pandemic, we were hearing about uh, people making really tough choices between heating and food and parents skipping food, children picking up in the parental stress around finances and stopping asking to go to birthday parties, for example, because you couldn't even bring a birthday present and parents being too embarrassed to, you know, to say I can't afford a birthday present. So just saying to the child, you can't go and that causing issues. But when that starts happening, children stop asking stop asking for things and like that in itself is a real indication and if you you think about child poverty and the deprivation indicators that are there like one of them is that social aspect you know that you socialize once a month whether that's taking the kids to the cinema whether it's them going to a birthday party or swimming lesson if we're not providing even the small amount that it takes to do that then we're really failing those children so I think there's there's something we really need to address there that the state needs to step back and think about that. And with this national action plan on child poverty, with the review and the roadmap for social inclusion, some of the initiatives that are currently happening, they have that opportunity to do it. I really hope they take it. And obviously the Joint Directors Committee on Children and Equality, um, they've been looking at child poverty as an issue. So I think, you know, they could make some really interesting recommendations around this too. Yeah, and certainly now that we're we're talking more about well-being frameworks and and building policy around those those types of frameworks and looking towards New Zealand and Canada who already have those in place, they tend to start with child poverty and move from there. So it's certainly, you know, if we're really serious about putting all these policies in place, that's a really good place to start. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and you mentioned those kind of those little things that the children can miss out on. Like I, I remember in a, a former life um, working on the debt side of things, the, the, the debt policy side of things, seeing budgets where, you know, uh, a single mother with two kids had a budget for food of 20 euro a week. Like that's not a budget. That's food banks. No. You know, there's yeah. there's something there's either a, a St. Vincent de Paul voucher or a food bank or some charity picking up the mm-hmm. slack there. And that's that's not acceptable. Um, yeah. If you could change one thing for budget 2023, like if you had one big recommendation, what would it be? I think it would be that child poverty unit putting in place the infrastructure to actually address this in a systemic way, because, you know, we see year on year. Obviously, and this, this goes back to program for governments, a government is never going to do a multi-annual budget because they don't know when their lifetime is going to end. They don't know when their term's going to end. So there is always that pushback and they don't know what's going to be in the coffers in a couple of years' time. But really, if we could do multi-annual budgeting, that would be amazing. But I suppose in terms of that child poverty unit and maybe looking at it from a children's rights point of view, like we would have said this about the pandemic as well, things would have been different from the outset in the pandemic we think if there had been a child rights impact assessment looking at what happened during that but a child poverty unit they have one in New Zealand and you talked about the well-being infrastructure there as well it links to that um, Spain have a high commissioner for uh, child poverty now so you know there's some really inter- interesting um, systems around or ways of doing it you have to adapt it to the Irish context. It's not going to be the same as it is anywhere else. Um, But at the same time, I think putting that infrastructure in place and actually investing in it, bringing those different um, pieces of the puzzle together, bringing, you know, departmental officials from other 
government departments. And I think, you know, very often people think, oh, it's the Department of Children's responsibility or the Department of Social Protection. Yes, they play a huge role in this, but education, uh, you know, health, housing, um, all of those government departments have a part to play as well. And I think, you know, when you look at the National Policy Framework on Children and Young People, and there's going to be a new one developed this year, they have some infrastructure there that's really interesting and really important to put into, uh, to, to implement some of the commitments that will be made. And, you know, they have an advisory council, but they also have, you know, the senior officials coming together um, and meeting on a regular basis to try and, and look at what the commitments are and how they can roll those out and bring people together to share that information and knowledge. But I think having a dedicated unit and like we've costed it up and it's not going to cost that much. And I know Social Justice Ireland also called for it um, last year as well, because it's a drop in the ocean, like it's a few million over three years. Um, and that would put in place, you know, enough staff. It would be a small unit, but enough staff with the expertise to to really thrash this out, look at what could work, look at what the solutions are, be very solution focused, very evidence based. Um, and I think that would like that would be my one big ask for, for budget. We've been asking for it for a couple of years now. It would be nice to see it put in place. But I think the child guarantee really provides that opportunity to look at what's happening elsewhere. And, you know, we're part of um, your child, which are like the European version of us and an umbrella organisation. Um, and there's a task force there. So we're learning from our peers elsewhere and trying to bring that back um, to government and say, look, this is what works well there. Why don't you consider this? Why don't you have a look at it? Um, you know, and we do have different uh, poverty issues here that maybe other people mightn't have elsewhere. But there are certainly commonalities that that you know, go right across the board with certain groups of children, certain cohorts of children, um, you know, households with the disability, those with the migrant background, traveller aroma, they all uh, experience, and one-parent families, they all experience much greater levels of deprivation and poverty. And it shouldn't be that way, and it doesn't have to be that way. It is, it's a policy choice. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Saoirse. It was a real pleasure to have you. Thanks, Colette. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. I certainly enjoyed making it. As always, if you have any comments or suggestions, please do get in touch at secretary at socialjustice.ie. And until next time, stay safe.